Chapter 5a of Anticipations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anticipations by H. G. Wells. Chapter 5a The Life History of Democracy. In the preceding four chapters, there has been developed, in a clumsy, laborious way, a smudgy, imperfect picture of the generalized civilized state of the coming century. In terms vague enough at times, but never absolutely indefinite, the general distribution of the population in this state has been discussed, and its natural development into four great, but in practice intimately interfused, classes. It has been shown, I know not how convincingly, that as the result of forces that are practically irresistible, a worldwide process of social and moral deliquescence is in progress, and that a really functional social body of engineering, managing men, scientifically trained, and having common ideals and interests, is likely to segregate and disentangle itself from our present confusion of aimless and ill-directed lives. It has been pointed out that life is presenting an unprecedented and increasing variety of morals, menages, occupations, and types, at present so mingled as to give a general effect of greyness, but containing the promise of local concentration that may presently change that greyness into kaleidoscopic effects. That image of concentrating contrasted colours will be greatly repeated in this present chapter. In the course of these inquiries we have permitted ourselves to take a few concrete glimpses of households, costumes, conveyances, and conveniences of the coming time, but only as incidental realizations of points in this general thesis. And now, assuming, as we must necessarily do, the soundness of these earlier speculations, we have arrived at a stage when we may consider how the existing arrangements for the ostensible government of the state are likely to develop through their own inherent forces, and how they are likely to be affected by the processes we have forecast. So far this has been a speculation upon the probable development of a civilized society in vacuo. Attention has been almost exclusively given to the forces of development, and not to the forces of conflict and restraint. We have ignored the boundaries of language that are flung athwart the great lines of modern communication. We have disregarded the friction of tariffs, the peculiar groups of prejudices and irrational instincts that inspire one miscellany of shareholders, workers, financiers, and superfluous poor such as the English, to hate, exasperate, lie about, and injure another such miscellany as the French or the Germans. Moreover, we have taken very little account of the fact that, quite apart from nationality, each individual case of the new social order is developing within the form of a legal government based on conceptions of a society that has been superseded by the advent of mechanism. It is this last matter that we are about to take into consideration. Now this age is being constantly described as a democratic age. Democracy is alleged to have affected art, literature, trade, and religion alike in the most remarkable ways. It is not only tacitly present in the great bulk of contemporary thought that this democracy is now dominant, but that it is becoming more and more overwhelmingly predominant as the years pass. Allusions to democracy are so abundant, deductions from its influence so confident and universal, that it is worth while to point out what a very hollow thing the world in most cases really is. 
a large empty object in thought of the most vague and faded associations and the most attenuated content and to inquire just exactly what the original implications and present realities of democracy may be the inquiry will leave us with a very different conception of the nature and future of this sort of political arrangement from that generally assumed we have already seen in the discussion of the growth of great cities that an analytical process may absolutely invert the expectation based on the gross results up to date and i believe it will be equally possible to show cause for believing that the development of democracy also is after all not the opening phase of a world-wide movement going on unbendingly in its present direction but the first impulse of forces that will finally sweep round into a quite different path flying off at a tangent is probably one of the gravest dangers and certainly the one most constantly present in this enterprise of prophecy one may i suppose take the rights of man as they are embodied in the french declaration as the ostentations of democracy our present democratic state may be regarded as a practical realization of these claims as far as the individual goes the realization takes the form of an untrammeled liberty in matters that have heretofore been considered a part of social procedure in the lifting of positive religious and moral compulsions in the recognition of absolute property and in the abolition of special privileges and special restrictions politically modern democracy takes the form of denying that any specific person or persons shall act as a matter of intrinsic right or capacity on behalf of the community as a whole its root idea is representation government is based primarily on election and every ruler is in theory at least a delegate and servant of the popular will it is implicit in the democratic theory that there is such a thing as a popular will and this is supposed to be the net sum of the wills of all the citizens in the state so far as public affairs are concerned in its less perfect and more usual state the democratic theory is advanced either as an ethical theory which postulates an absence of formal acquiescence on the part of the governed as injustice or else as a convenient political compromise the least objectionable of all possible methods of public control because it will permit only the minimum of general unhappiness i know of no case for the elective democratic government of modern states that cannot be knocked to pieces in five minutes it is manifest that upon countless important public issues there is no collective will and nothing in the mind of the average man except blank indifference that an electional system simply places power in the hands of the most skilful electioneers, that neither men nor their rights are identically equal but vary with each individual, and, above all, that the minimum or maximum of general happiness is related only so indirectly to the public control that people will suffer great miseries from their governments unresistingly, and, on the other hand, change their rulers on account of the most trivial irritations the case against all the prolusions of ostensible democracy is indeed so strong that it is impossible to consider the present wide establishment of democratic institutions as being the outcome of any process of intellectual conviction it arouses suspicion even whether ostensible democracy may not be a mere rhetorical garment for essentially different facts and upon that suspicion we will now inquire democracy of the modern type manhood suffrage and so forth became a conspicuous phenomenon in the world only in the closing decades of the eighteenth century 
Its genesis is so intimately connected with the first expansion of the productive element in the state through mechanism and a cooperative organization as to point at once to a causative connection. The more closely one looks into the social and political life of the eighteenth century, the more plausible becomes this view. New and potentially influential social factors had begun to appear. The organizing manufacturer, the intelligent worker, the skilled tenant, and the urban abyss. And the traditions of the old land-owning non-progressive aristocratic monarchy that prevailed in Christendom rendered it incapable, without some destructive shock or convulsion, of any reorganization to incorporate or control these new factors. In the case of the British Empire an additional stress was created by the incapacity of the formal government to assimilate the developing civilization of the American colonies, Everywhere there were new elements, not as yet clearly analysed or defined, arising as mechanism arose. Everywhere the old traditional government and social system, defined and analysed all too well, appeared increasingly obstructive, irrational, and feeble in its attempts to include and direct these new powers. But now comes a point to which I am inclined to attach very great importance. The new powers were as yet shapeless. It was not the conflict of a new organization with the old, it was the preliminary dwarfing and deliquescence of the mature old beside the embryonic mass of the new. It was impossible then, it is, I believe, only beginning to be possible now, to estimate the proportions, possibilities, and interrelations of the new social orders out of which a social organization has still to be built in the coming years. No formula of definite reconstruction had been evolved, or has even been evolved yet, after a hundred years. And these swelling, inchoate new powers, whose very birth condition was the crippling, modification or destruction of the old order, were almost forced to formulate their proceedings for a time, therefore, in general affirmative propositions that were really in effect not affirmative propositions at all, but propositions of repudiation and denial. These kings and nobles and people privileged in relation to obsolescent functions cannot manage our affairs. That was evident enough. That was the really essential question at that time, and since no other effectual substitute appeared ready-made, the working doctrine of the infallible judgment of humanity in the gross, as distinguished from the quite indisputable incapacity of sample individuals, became, in spite of its inherent absurdity, a convenient and acceptable working hypothesis. Modern democracy thus came into being not, as eloquent persons have pretended, by the sovereign people consciously and definitely assuming power. I imagine the sovereign people in France during the First Revolution, for example, quite amazed and muddle-headed with it all. But by the decline of old ruling classes in the face of the quasi-natural growth of mechanism and industrialism, and by the unpreparedness and want of organization in the new intelligent elements in the state. I have compared the human beings in society to a great and increasing variety of colours tumultuously smashed up together, and giving at present a general and quite illusory effect of grey, and I have attempted to show that there is a process in progress that will amount at last to the segregation of these mingled tints into recognisable distinct masses again. It is not a monotony, but an utterly disorderly and confusing variety that makes this grey, but democracy, for practical purposes, does really assume such a monotony. Like infinity, the democratic formula is a concrete-looking and negotiable symbol for a negation. 
it is the aspect and political disputes and contrivances of that social and moral deliquescence the nature and possibilities of which have been discussed in the preceding chapters of this volume modern democracy first asserted itself in the ancient kingdoms of france and great britain counting the former British colonies in America as part of the latter, and it is in the French and English-speaking communities that democracy has developed itself most completely. Upon the supposition we have made, democracy broke out first in these states because they were leading the way in material progress, because they were the first states to develop industrialism, wholesale mechanisms, and great masses of insubordinate activity outside the recognized political scheme and the nature and time and violence of the outbreak was determined by the nature of the superseded government and the amount of stress between it and the new elements. But the detachment of a great section of the new middle class from the aristocratic order of England to form the United States of America, and the sudden rejuvenescence of France by the swift and thorough slowing of its outworn aristocratic monarchy, the consequent wars and the Napoleonic adventure, checked and modified the parallel development that might otherwise have happened in country after country all over Europe west of the Carpathians. The monarchies that would probably have collapsed through internal forces and given place to modern democratic states were smashed from the outside, and a process of political reconstruction that has probably missed out the complete formal democratic phase altogether, and which has been enormously complicated through religious, national and dynastic traditions, set in. Throughout America, in England, and after extraordinary experiments in France, political democracy has in effect legally established itself most completely in the United States, and the reflection and influence of its methods upon the methods of all the other countries in intellectual contact with it have been so considerable as practically to make their monarchies as new in their kind almost as democratic republics. In Germany, Austria, and Italy, for example, there is a press nearly as audible as in the more frankly democratic countries, and measurably akin in influence, there are constitutionally established legislative assemblies, and there is the same unofficial development of powerful financial and industrial powers with which the ostensible government must make terms. In a vast amount of the public discussion of these states, the postulates of democracy are clearly implicit. Quite as much in reality as the democratic republics of America are they based not on classes, but upon a confusion. They are, in their various degrees and with their various individual differences, just as truly governments of the grey. It has been argued that the grey is illusory, and must sooner or later pass, and that the colour that will emerge to predominance will take its shape as a scientifically trained middle class of an unprecedented sort, not arising out of the older middle classes, but replacing them. This class will become, I believe, at last consciously, the state, controlling and restricting very greatly the three non-functional masses with which it is as yet almost indistinguishably mingled. The general nature of its formation within the existing confusion and its emergence may, I think, with a certain degree of confidence, be already forecast albeit at present its beginnings are singularly unpromising and faint. At present the class of specially trained and capable people, doctors, engineers, scientific men of all sorts, is quite disproportionately absent from political life. It does not exist as a factor in that life, it is growing up outside that life, and has still to develop, much more to display, a collective intention to come specifically in. 
but the forces are in active operation to drag it into the centre of the stage for all that. The modern democracy or democratic quasi-monarchy conducts its affairs as though there was no such thing as special knowledge or practical education. The utmost recognition it affords to the man who has taken the pains to know, and specifically to do, is occasionally to consult him upon specific points and override his counsels in its ampler wisdom, or to entrust to him some otherwise impossible duty under circumstances of extreme limitation. The man of special equipment is treated always as if he were some sort of curious performing animal. The gunnery specialist, for example, may move and let off guns, but he may not say where they are to be let off. Someone a little ignorant of range and trajectory does that. The engineer may move the ship and fire the battery, but only with some man who does not perfectly understand shouting instructions down a tube at him. If the cycle is to be adapted to military requirements, the thing is entrusted to Lieutenant Colonel Balfour. If horses are to be bought for the British Army in India, no specialist goes but Lord Edward Cecil. These people of the governing class do not understand there is such a thing as special knowledge or an inexorable fact in the world. They have been educated at schools conducted by amateur schoolmasters, whose real aim in life, if such people can be described as having a real aim in life, is the episcopal bench. And they have learned little or nothing but the extraordinary power of appearances in these democratic times. To look right, and to be of good report, is to succeed. What else is there? The primarily functional men are ignored in the ostensible political scheme. It operates as though they did not exist, as though nothing in fact existed but the irresponsible wealthy and the manipulators of irresponsible wealth on the one hand, and a great grey politically indifferent community on the other. Having regard only to the present condition of political life, it would seem as though this state of affairs must continue indefinitely, and develop only in accordance with the laws of interaction between our charlatan governing class on the one hand, and the grey mass of governed on the other. There is no way apparent in the existing political and social order whereby the class of really educated persons that the continually more complicated mechanical fabric of social life is developing may be expected to come in. And in a very great amount of current political speculation, the development and final emergence of this class is ignored, and attention is concentrated entirely upon the inherent process of development of the political machine. And even in that it is very easy to exaggerate the preponderance of one or other of what are really very evenly balanced forces in the machine of democratic government. There are two chief sets of parts in the machine that have a certain antagonistic relation, that play against each other, and one's conception of coming developments is necessarily determined by the relative value one gives to these opposing elements. One may compare these two groups to the power and the work, respectively, at the two ends of a lever. Footnote. The fulcrum, which is generally treated as being absolutely immovable, being the general belief in the theory of democracy. End footnote. On the one hand, there is that which pays for the machine, which distributes salaries and rewards, subsidizes newspapers and so forth, the central influence. Footnote. In the United States, a vast, rapidly developing country, with relatively much kinetic wealth, this central influence is the financial support of the boss, consisting, for the most part, of active-minded, capable business organizers. 
in england the land where irresponsible realized wealth is at a maximum a public-spirited section of the irresponsible, inspired by the tradition of an aristocratic functional past, qualifies the financial influence with an amateurish, indolent, and publicly unprofitable integrity. In Germany, an aggressively functional court occupies the place and plays the part of a permanently dominant party machine. End footnote. On the other hand, there is the collectively grey voting mass, with certain prejudices and traditions, and certain laws and limitations of thought, upon which the newspapers work, and which, within the confines of its inherent laws, they direct. If one dwell chiefly on the possibilities of the former element, one may conjure up a practical end to democracy, in the vision of a state run entirely by a group of highly forcible and intellectual persons, Usually the dream takes the shape of financiers and their associates, their perfected mechanism of party control working the elections boldly and capably, and their public policy being directed towards financial ends. One of the common prophecies of the future of the United States is such a domination by a group of trust organizers and political bosses. But a man or a group of men so strong and intelligent as would be needed to hold an entire party machine within the confines of his or their collective mind and will, could at the most be but a very transitory and incidental phenomenon in the history of the world. Either such an exploitation of the central control will have to be covert and subtle beyond any precedent in human disingenuousness, or else its domination will have to be very amply modified indeed by the requirements of the second factor, and its proceedings made very largely the resultant of that second factor's forces. Moreover, very subtle men do not aim at things of this sort, or aiming fail, because subtlety of intelligence involves subtlety of character, a certain fastidiousness and a certain weakness. Now that the garrulous period, when a flow of language and a certain effectiveness of manner was a necessary condition to political preeminence, is passing away, political control falls more and more entirely into the hands of a barristerish, intriguing sort of person with a tough-wearing, leathery, practical mind. The sort of people who will work the machine are people with faith, as the popular preachers say, meaning, in fact, people who do not analyse people who will take the machine as it is, unquestioningly, shape their ambitions to it, and, saving their vanity, work it as it wants to go. The man who will be boss will be the man who wants to be boss, who finds in being boss a complete and final satisfaction, and not the man who complicates things by wanting to be boss in order to be or do something else. The machines are governed today, and there is every reason to believe that they will continue to be governed, by masterful-looking resultants, masters of nothing but compromise, and that little fancy of an inner conspiracy of control within the machine and behind ostensible politics is really on all fours with the wonderful Rodin of the Jouferrand, and as probable as anything else in the romances of Eugene Sue. If, on the other hand, we direct attention to the antagonistic element in the machine, to public opinion, to the alleged collective mind of the grey mass, and consider how it is brought to believe in itself and its possession of certain opinions by the concrete evidence of daily newspapers and eloquent persons saying as much, we may also very readily conjure up a contrasted vision of extraordinary demagogues or newspaper syndicates working the political machine from that direction. So far as the demagogue goes, the increase of population, the multiplication of amusements and interests, the differentiation of social habits, 
the diffusion of great towns, all militate against that sufficient gathering of masses of voters and meeting-houses which gave him his power in the recent past. It is improbable that ever again will any flushed, undignified man with a vast voice, a muscular face in incessant operation, collar crumpled, hair disordered, and arms in wild activity, talking, 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 talking copiously out of the windows of railway carriages, talking on railway platforms, talking from hotel balconies, talking on tubs, barrels, scaffoldings, pulpits, tireless and undammable, rise to be the most powerful thing in any democratic state in the world. Continually the individual vocal demagogue dwindles, and the element of bands and buttons, the organization of the press and procession, the share of the machine, grows. Mr. Harmsworth of the London Daily Mail, in a very interesting article, has glanced at certain possibilities of power that may vest in the owners of a great system of worldwide simultaneous newspapers, but he does not analyse the nature of the influence exercised by newspapers during the successive phases of the nineteenth century, nor the probable modifications of that influence in the years to come. And I think on the whole he inclines very naturally to overestimate the amount of intentional direction that may be given by the owner of a paper to the minds and acts of his readers, and to exceed the very definite limits within which that influence is confined. In the earlier Victorian period the more limited, partly educated, and still very homogeneous enfranchised class had a certain habit of thinking. Its tranquil assurance upon most theological and all moral and aesthetic points left political questions as the chief field of exercise for such thinking as it did, and as a consequence the dignified newspapers of that time were able to discuss, and indeed were required to discuss, not only specific situations, but general principles. That indeed was their principal function, and it fell rather to the eloquent men to misapply these principles according to the necessity of the occasion. The papers did then very much more than they do now to mould opinion, though they did not direct affairs to anything like the extent of their modern successes. They made roads upon which events presently travelled in unexpected fashions. But the often cheaper and always more vivid newspapers that have come with the new democracy do nothing to mould opinion. Indeed, there is no longer upon most public questions, and as I have tried to make clear in my previous paper, there is not likely to be any longer a collective opinion to be moulded. Protectionists, for example, are a mere band, free traders are a mere band. On all these details we are in chaos. And these modern newspapers simply endeavour to sustain a large circulation, and so merit advertisements, by being as miscellaneously and vividly interesting as possible, by firing where the crowd seems thickest, by seeking perpetually and without any attempt at consistency the greatest excitement of the greatest number. It is upon the cultivation and rapid succession of inflammatory topics that the modern newspaper expends its capital and trusts to recover its reward. Its general news sinks steadily to a subordinate position. Criticism, discussion, and high responsibility pass out of journalism, and the power of the press comes more and more to be a dramatic and emotional power, the power to cry fire in the theatre, the power to give enormous value for a limited time to some personality, some event, some aspect, true or false, without any power of giving a specific direction to the forces this distortion may set going. 
Directly the press of today passes from that sort of thing to some specific proposal, some implication of principles and beliefs, directly it chooses and selects, then it passes from the miscellaneous to the sectarian, and out of touch with the grey indefiniteness of the general mind. It gives offence here, it perplexes and bores there, no more than the boss politician can the paper of great circulation afford to work consistently for any ulterior aim. This is the limit of the power of the modern newspaper of large circulation, the newspaper that appeals to the grey element, to the average democratic man, the newspaper of the deliquescence. And if our previous conclusion that human society has ceased to be homogeneous and will presently display new masses segregating from a great confusion holds good, that will be the limit of its power in the future. It may undergo many remarkable developments and modifications, but none of these tend to give it any greater political importance than it has now. Footnote. The nature of these modifications is an interesting side issue. There is every possibility of papers becoming at last papers of worldwide circulation, so far as the language in which they are printed permits, with editions that will follow the sun and change into tomorrow's issue as they go, picking up literary criticism here, financial intelligence there, here tomorrow's story, and there tomorrow's scandal, and like some vast intellectual garden-roller, rolling out local provincialism at every revolution. This, for papers in English at any rate, is merely a question of how long it will be before the price of the best writing, for journalistic purposes, rises actually or relatively above the falling cost of long-distance electrical typesetting. Each of the local editions of these world-travelling papers, in addition to the identical matter that will appear almost simultaneously everywhere, will no doubt have its special matter and its special advertisements. Illustrations will be telegraphed just as well as matter, and probably a much greater use will be made of sketch and diagram than at present. If the theory advanced in this book that democracy is a transitory confusion be sound, there will not be one world paper of this sort only, like Moses's serpent after its miraculous struggle, but several. And as the non-provincial segregation of society goes on, these various great papers will take on more and more decided specific characteristics, and lose more and more their local references. They will come to have not only a distinctive type of matter, a distinctive method of thought and manner of expression, but distinctive fundamental implications, and a distinctive class of writer. This difference in character and tone renders the advent of any Napoleonic master of the newspaper world vastly more improbable than it would otherwise be. The specialising newspapers will, as they find their class, throw out many features that do not belong to that class. It is highly probable that many will restrict the space devoted to news and sham news, that forged and inflated stuff made in offices that bulks out the foreign intelligence of so many English papers, for example. At present every paper contains a little of everything, inadequate sporting stuff, inadequate financial stuff, vague literary matters, voluminous reports of political vaporings, because no newspaper is quite sure of the sort of readers it has. Probably no daily newspaper has yet a distinctive sort of reader. Many people, with their minds inspired by the number of editions which evening papers pretend to publish and do not, incline to believe that daily papers may presently give place to hourly papers, each with the last news of the last sixty minutes photographically displayed. As a matter of fact, no human being wants that, and very few are so foolish as to think they do. 
The only kind of news that any sort of people clamours for hot and hot is financial and betting fluctuations, lottery lists and examination results. And the elaborated and cheapened telegraphic and telephonic system of the coming days, with tapes or phonograph to replace them, in every post office and nearly every private house, so far from expanding this department, will probably sweep it out of the papers altogether. One will subscribe to a news agency which will wire all the stuff one cares to have so violently fresh into a phonographic recorder, perhaps, in some convenient corner. There the thing will be in every house, beside the barometer, to hear or ignore. With the separation of that function, what is left of the newspaper will revert to one daily edition. Daily, I think, because of the power of habit to make the newspaper the specific business of some definite moments in the day. The breakfast hour, I suppose, or the up-to-town journey with most Englishmen now. Quite possibly someone will discover some day that there is now machinery for folding and fastening a paper into a form that will not inevitably get into the butter or lead to bitterness in a railway carriage. This pitch of development reached, I incline to anticipate daily papers much more like the spectator in form than these present mainsails of our public life. They will probably not contain fiction at all, and poetry only rarely, because no one but a partial imbecile wants these things in punctual daily doses, and we are anticipating an escape from a period of partial imbecility. My own culture and turn of mind, which is probably akin to that of a respectable mechanic of the year 2000, inclines me towards a daily paper that will have, in addition to its concentrated and absolutely trustworthy daily news, full and luminous accounts of new inventions, new theories and new departures of all sorts, usually illustrated, witty and penetrating comments upon public affairs, criticisms of all sorts of things, representations of newly produced works of art, and an ample amount of ably written controversy upon everything under the sun. The correspondence columns, instead of being an exercising place for bores and conspicuous people who are not mercenary, will be the most ample, the most carefully collected, and the most highly paid of all departments in this paper. Personal paragraphs will be relegated to some obscure and costly corner next to the births, deaths, and marriages. This paper will have, of course, many pages of business advertisements, and these will usually be well worth looking through, for the more intelligent editors of the days to come will edit this department just like any other, and classify their advertisements in a descending scale of freshness and interest that will also be an ascending scale of price. The advertiser who wants to be an indecent bore and vociferate for the ten millionth time some flatulent falsehood about a pill, for instance, will pay at nuisance rates. Probably many papers will refuse to print nasty and distressful advertisements about people's insides at all. The entire paper will be as free from either greyness or offensive stupidity in its advertisement columns as the shop windows in Bond Street today, and for much the same reason, because the people who go that way do not want that sort of thing. It has been supposed that, since the real income of the newspaper is derived from advertisements, large advertisers will combine in the future to own papers confined to the advertisements of their specific wares. Some such monopoly is already attempted. Several publishing firms own or partially own a number of provincial papers which they adorn with strange book-chat columns conspicuously deficient in their information and a well-known cycle tyre firm supplies cycling columns that are mere pedestals for the head of King Charles' make of tyre. 
Many quack firms publish and give away annual almanacs replete with economical illustrations, offensive details, and bad jokes. But I venture to think, in spite of such phenomena, that these suggestions and attempts are made with a certain disregard of the essential conditions of sound advertisement. Sound advertisement consists in perpetual alertness and newness, in appearance in new places and in new aspects, in the constant access to fresh minds. The devotion of a newspaper to the interest of one particular make of a commodity or group of commodities will inevitably rob its advertisement department of most of its interest for the habitual readers of the paper. That is to say, the newspaper will fail in what is one of the chief attractions of a good newspaper. Moreover, such a devotion will react upon all the other matter in the paper, because the editor will need to be constantly alert to exclude seditious reflections upon the health extract of horse-flesh, or saved by boiling jam, his sense of this relation will taint his self-respect and make him a less capable editor than a man whose sole affair is to keep his paper interesting. To these more interesting rival papers the excluded competitor will be driven, and the reader will follow in his wake. There is little more wisdom in the proprietor of an article, in popular demand, buying or creating a newspaper to contain all his advertisements, than in his buying a coal-pit for the same purpose. Such a privacy of advertisement will never work, I think, on a large scale. It is probably at or near its maximum development now, and this anticipation of the advertiser-owned paper, like that of hourly papers, and that wonderfully powerful cosmic newspaper syndicate is simply another instance of prophesying based only on a present trend, an extension of the obvious, instead of an analysis of determining forces. End footnote. And so, after all, our considerations of the probable developments of the party machine give us only negative results, so long as the grey social confusion continues. Subject to that continuance, the party machine will probably continue as it is at present, and democratic states and governments follow the lines upon which they run at the present time. Now, how will the emergent class of capable men presently begin to modify the existing form of government in the ostensibly democratic countries and democratic monarchies? There will be very many variations and modifications of the methods of this arrival, an infinite complication of detailed incidents, but a general proposition will be found to hold good. The suppression of the party machine in the purely democratic countries, and of the official choice of the rich and privileged rulers in the more monarchial ones, by capable operative and administrative men, inspired by the belief in a common theory of social order, will come about, peacefully and gradually as a process of change or violently as a revolution, but inevitably as the outcome either of the imminence or else of the disasters of war. That all these governments of confusion will drift towards war, with a spacious impulse and a final vehemence quite out of comparison greater than the warlike impulses of former times, is a remarkable but by no means inexplicable thing. A tone of public expression, jealous and patriotic to the danger point, is an unavoidable condition under which democratic governments exist. To be patriotically quarrelsome is imperative upon the party machines that will come to dominate the democratic countries. They will not possess detailed and definite policies and creeds, because there are no longer any detailed and definite public opinions. But they will, for all that, 
require some ostensible purpose to explain their cohesion, some hold upon the common man that will ensure his appearance in numbers at the polling place sufficient to save the government from the raids of small but determined sects. That hold can be only of one sort. Without moral or religious uniformity, with material interests as involved and confused as a heap of spellicans, there remains only one generality for the politician's purpose, the ampler aspect of a man's egotism, his pride in what he imagines to be his particular kind, his patriotism. In every country amenable to democratic influences there emerges, or will emerge, a party machine vividly and simply patriotic, and indefinite upon the score of any other possible consideration between man and man. This will hold true not only of the ostensibly democratic states, but also of such reconstituted modern monarchies as Italy and Germany, for they too, for all their legal difference, rest also on the grey. The party conflicts of the future will turn very largely on the discovery of the true patriot, on the suspicion that the crown or the machine in possession is in some more or less occult way traitorous, and almost all other matters of contention will be shelved and allowed to stagnate for fear of breaking the unity of the national mechanism. End of chapter 5a. Recording by John Trevithick.